<clears throat> nobody. 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 Nobody read short stories. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Nobody Read Short Stories, Season 4. This is very exciting. Uh, you can listen to all of our other episodes on our YouTube channel, nobodyreadshortstories.com. And tonight, we have a very special episode. This is going to be The Whisper Witch by Alex Bloom. Present day. That little boy's name is Michael. He stole my book. He thinks I'm a witch, and he thinks that book is filled with spells. He's right. He's a smart kid. I'm not sure how he figured it out. As a fourth grade teacher, it puts me in the perfect position to see teeth fall out. I came up with the idea of giving out little erasers whenever a tooth fell out in class, and I said I'd give the tooth to the tooth fairy for them. I've been collecting children's teeth for ages. The first child who gave me a baby tooth is in college. No one's ever had a second thought about it. It's the most obvious thing I do, though. I keep them all, of course. There's a lot you can do if you own bits and pieces of people. The teeth are an investment. Michael might have tipped off by my parrot, Monty is a vasiparrot, which is pitch black. I figured a black cat or a raven was too obvious, but a black parrot serves the same purpose. Monty makes a wonderful companion as well as being a familiar. I've been studying Michael since he stole my book. He's bullied a lot. In the first week, he was attacked twice by two of the larger boys, but he didn't tell anyone. When I say attacked, I mean attacked, physically. It's bad enough that he still has bruises. I understand why he didn't come to me. If he thinks I'm a witch, he probably doesn't feel safe with me. What about the principal, though? The yard duty? No one? As time went on, he was picked on tormented throughout the school days. It started with the boys, but it spread to the girls, too. It's disturbing to watch. I didn't say anything because I'd have to admit I was effectively stalking a child. I learned that the children live in a pseudo-prison. Michael hasn't said anything because he believes that life will get worse. He's right. I've been watching the rest of the staff, too. They will do the least amount of work possible. They won't do anything unless they have to, and they do have to. They will only do the bare minimum. It's made me realize I've been trying too hard to keep my identity a secret. I have a simple plan now to get my book back. I pick up the teeth I need and place them in a coffee grinder. I absolutely love modern conveniences. The woman who taught me how to do this ritual showed me with a mortar and pestle, like we were common peasants. Oh, and she showed me how to carry the bone meal in the bladder of a rabbit. I'm using a plastic baggie. 
I meet the children in the creek bed. One bully, one victim. Kevin was talking when I stepped out from behind the trees. I can see Michael is afraid, even more so now that I'm here. Hello, boys. What are you doing out here? Michael stays quiet. We're just having fun exploring, Kevin lies. I empty the baggie into my hand. Come here, Kevin. He comes closer. I blow the ground tooth in his face. He flinches and spits out the tooth dust. Kevin, I say, grabbing his attention. Stop breathing. He opens his mouth, confused, but can't say anything. Air can't go in or out anymore. They'll find his body sooner or later and assume he choked on his own lunch. Michael? Yes, Mrs. L? he asks. He's not sure how to respond, either. He also doesn't know my real name. I don't give it out, and so everyone just calls me Mrs. L. I understand you have my spell book. I would like it back. He's completely terrified. You're a smart boy, and I know you were dealt a really bad hand. No one's going to hurt you at this school anymore. Kevin was the worst, and he's gone now. The others will stop, or they'll have to speak with me. Okay? He understands. So, uh, you're, you're a... Yes, I am. But I'm going to protect you from now on. But I would really like my book back. Oh, oh yeah, it's at home. I can bring it to school tomorrow, he says. That would be wonderful, I smile. He looks at Kevin. You, you can control people? Why didn't you keep him... Uh, make him do chores or something. I adore how smart he is. Do you ever pull food out of the trash and think about eating it? No, uh, of course not. Kevin was trash. He and I go our separate ways for the evening. I really couldn't blame him for stealing the book. I stole something once that was extremely valuable. I was the littlest one in the family, and so I was picked on, too. He doesn't need to be punished. He needs help, like I did. It's nice to know everything is being put back in its right place. Fall, 1683. With the power granted to me by God and the Holy Spirit... I banish you back to hell, the religious man said. He seemed proud of his words, like it meant something real. I know now he was nothing more than a common with a white collar. The fire was lit under his victim, and the witch started to burn. He was a young man with kind eyes and red hair, not ginger, more of that soft, welcoming brown hair. I'm talking about the victim, not the murderer. The murderer was an old white man with very little hair. All nine members of my family were there to watch the witch burning. I was 15 at the time, 
The second youngest of my siblings, my father wanted to make sure we all saw it. He was so into his fiction book and demanded we all be present for this burning. He loved that stupid book more than he loved any of his children. I don't think he loved his wife. He never spoke to her with respect and he never listened to her. On my good days, I feel sorry for her. And on my bad days, I'm angry she did nothing to stop him. I was too small and weak at the time to do anything. If I had tried to leave, my father would have beaten me as punishment or, or he would have let one of my brothers do what they wanted instead. Either way, I just had to watch as a young gay man was burned to death. He was gagged, so we didn't hear his screams. When we got home, no one talked about it. Everyone just pretended it didn't happen. We sat for, for supper, prayed before eating. My father made us thank someone for the food we ate, but every part of the meal was provided by us. We had our farm and raised the chicken we were eating. The bread was prepared with wheat that I personally harvested. The only part of the meal we didn't provide was the fruitcake. My portion of the fruitcake was snatched by my little sister when I wasn't looking, and when I tried to get it back, my mother snapped at me for trying to bully my sister like I was the aggressor. The following day, I was in the field. My father told me to hold a basket while he pulled potatoes out of the ground. Why did they have to burn him? I asked. It was the right thing to do, he replied. I assumed he didn't actually know, but I wanted to press him further. What would have happened if we just kicked them out of our town, made sure they never came back? Witches are too powerful for that, he explained. They're dangerous. They could destroy us just because they feel like it. If we kicked you out, I'm sure you'd be angry with us and would want to destroy us. We can't let witches live. He was always condescending, but he made one thing clear to me. He was afraid of what a witch could do. And I liked that. He also made it clear he didn't know I would destroy him if given the chance. Nightfall came. The others went to sleep. I left. Present day. Lunchtime. A small break in the day. Michael likes to rest behind the tree at the far edge of the school near the main street. It gives him what little peace he can get. There's direct line of sight to the teacher's lounge, and while no one can see in because of the tinted windows, it still always feels like someone is watching. Michael didn't have anything to occupy his time because the school doesn't let the kids bring toys from home. So he just sits watching the cars better than interacting with the others. Boring isn't so bad when you're afraid of constant torment. I've been watching him daily. He's avoiding me. 
He's the first one out of the class when the bell rings. He's the last one into class. He's been tardy several times. I haven't marked him as late, though. I scared him. I didn't mean to. I meant to show him how powerful I could be so I could protect him. I remember a magical creature once said, I want a human as a pet. I realize how much I see them that way now, too. Kevin wasn't the first student I've killed. He won't be the last. When you outlive everyone around you, you stop seeing their deaths as meaningful. Just another event in life. For a child, fireworks are a magical day you look forward to. But for an adult, it's an annoyance. I don't see humans as people anymore. Just livestock. Living day to day. A red rubber ball bounces off Michael's head. It made that rubbery bounce noise. The sickening noise that's burned into the heads of every school child. One of the other boys threw it at him. John's boredom had driven him to invent a new game. I call it Smear the Queer. You like it? John asked, bouncing the ball off Michael's head again. It didn't hurt that much, like a mild slap. Obviously, it hurt him emotionally. Michael didn't want to ask him to stop. What would be the point? If anything, that's what John wanted, some kind of begging. The ball bounced off Michael again. Three points. I get a point each time I catch the ball. Michael looked to the teacher's lounge. Maybe someone's watching. Maybe someone will shoo John away. John wouldn't actually be punished because boys believe boys, but at least he could get back to watching cars in peace. The window was open. Michael saw Mrs. L. Me, standing there in the teacher's lounge. I'd watched the whole thing unfold. I opened the window so they could both see me. Maybe John would see me too and skitter away to avoid punishment. I didn't want to get involved. If I had scared Michael, I wanted to give him space. I wanted to not upset him further. John, stop it! Michael shouted finally. Make me, John said, throwing the ball particularly hard. Michael caught it. You don't get it. If you don't stop, she'll get you. Give me that ball back. Michael threw the ball as hard as he could towards the playground. Go get it. He'd hoped John would have run off to fetch it like a dog, but it just pissed him off. He put his hand in a fist and pulled his arm back. Without really knowing what to do, Michael lurched forward. He was bigger than John, not by much, but enough to count. Throwing his body at the other boy was enough to send them both to the ground. Michael on top, throwing fists into John's face. John wildly trying to bat away with the attacks. The fight was messy, nothing like you'd see in a movie. Neither of the kids knew what they were doing, just sort of doing it. Michael landed a solid punch into John's cheekbone, and it hurt. It hurt deep into Michael's hand. I yanked Michael off the other boy by the back of his shirt. What the hell do you think you're doing? 
I shouted into Michael's face. This is probably terrifying him more. Maybe he thinks with me by his side he can do anything he wants. I had to step in. The yard duty, as well as a bunch of the other students, were crowding around. Lisa, I said to the yard duty, can you get John to the nurse's office? I'll deal with Michael. Of course, the yard duty replied. John was fine. Nothing broken. A couple bruises. I marched Michael to my office. Sit, I commanded. He did. Sit, Monty repeated. Why were you beating John like that? I asked. I told you I'd take care of you. I've been keeping an eye on you. I know he started it. I know John was actively bullying you. You can't kill me, Michael said. I still have your book. I'm not going to kill you. And I was going to ask about that next. The entire point is to help Michael. There was the confirmation that I did scare him, as if that was a surprise. As long as I have your book, you can't kill me. But you can kill anyone else, so I, I had to do something, Michael explained. I sat back in the chair behind my desk, baffled. You were sacrificing your own safety to protect John. Michael stayed silent. Why? Again, Michael had nothing to say. Well, uh, first off, uh, well, first off, I am not going to go around killing people. They won't pay me to teach an empty classroom. Second off, why? John's not worth protecting. Michael looked away, just trying to disconnect himself from the situation. I have to call your parents. What do you think they'll have to say about this? Gary and Karen won't care, Michael said. I already had the phone in my hands when he said that. I stopped. You call your parents by their first names? Michael shook his head. They're not my parents. It's a foster home. Fall, 1683. Six miles is a long way to walk, especially for a 15-year-old in the middle of the night. I remember being far more worried about one of my family members following me than a wild animal. I was too brave for my own good. The boy who was burned? He wasn't actually a witch. It was obvious. I'm sure the whole town knew. I don't know for why no one said anything. Looking back, I assume none of them ever actually questioned a thing about their lives. There were a couple other people that had been burned. One of them was a witch because she was caught sleeping with the con man's son and they weren't married. All of the witches seemed to be normal people except for one. An older woman who lived in a home deep in the woods. She only came to town every couple of months. Didn't say much, but she was caught collecting wild mushrooms. And she was carrying bones from small animals. 
she was deemed to be a witch for carrying cursed items. I thought she was just mentally ill. They burned her a month ago, and no one's gone to her house since. Everyone's too scared of it. So if I couldn't find anything to lead me to being a witch, there would at least be a place to sleep. We didn't own a horse or anything, so I walked everywhere. When I finally found the house, I wasn't winded. My legs were used to the constant walking, but I was still relieved to be inside. The door wasn't locked, so I let myself in. Pitch black, I found a candle. I brought flint and steel. I was good at starting a fire. I did it often back home. When I had some light, I got a better look at the place. It was far nicer than I had expected. I assumed it would be a gross hut with dead animals spread everywhere. It was clean, like one would find a rich person living in, except there were cobwebs in a bunch of the corners. Hello, I called out, hoping no one would answer. No one did. The spiders confirmed it for me. No one had been here in ages. I wandered around the house. Nothing really interesting jumped out, other than the fact that one doesn't see a house as upscale as this outside of cities. It was incredibly normal. None of the floorboards creaked. That wasn't true. There was one board that creaked in the back room. That raised questions. It meant there was space under that board. The rest would be solid against the ground. I got my hands and knees and I inspected it. The board moved for sure. There were scratch markings. The nails had been removed and put back several times. It was so exciting. I'd found something. The steel I'd brought made a nice wedge and I was able to pry out the nails. They weren't loose exactly, but they also weren't held in tight either. I moved the board away and set it down gently. I felt like I was being watched and judged. A wooden box was nestled inside a compartment under the floor. It was carefully engraved with vines and leaves. In the center was a carved flower. Opening the box, there was a book. It was filled with characters I didn't recognize and diagrams that I couldn't figure out what they meant. It fascinated me. It's the same book that a couple hundred years later, Michael would steal from my office when I wasn't looking. While flipping through the pages, I closed the box and put it back in its hiding spot, but when I tipped it over, I heard a thunk. Something else was in the box. A small, flat, velvet bag. It felt like there was a two-inch coin inside it. I opened it and pulled out a glass token. It had three eyes on it. I had no idea what it meant. Who are you? Where did you find that? A feminine voice said over my shoulder. I screamed. I clutched the token and the book and fled to the wall. If my heart had been any weaker, I'm sure I'd have died right then from a heart attack. It was a fairy standing there with gorgeous shimmering blue, pink, and white wings. 
She wore an evening gown, but the bottom of it was frayed from dragging on the ground too often. She had a friendly smile and adorable ears. She stood as tall as my oldest sister. The whole experience might have been fun if it weren't for the fact that she was illuminated by one candlelight. Why is it so dark in here? She said, looking around. Oh, it's Ethel's house. How's she doing these days? She snapped her fingers and an orb of light appeared in her hand. She tossed it to the ceiling and it stuck. The room was lit up like it was day. She's dead, I explained. Killed for being a witch. Pity. I liked her. She put her hands on her knees. Can I have your name, Lillin? I shook my head. I, I was told to never give my name to a fairy. Her smile changed just a bit. That friendly facade melted off and was left with a smile like she'd found a worthy chess opponent. She sat in the chair on the other side of the room with her legs over the armrest. So, what is it you want? I, I don't understand. You summoned me here. Didn't you want to make a deal? Magic for something trivial? I stammered a bit. I, I, I didn't summon you. That glass disc you're holding, it's a fairy favor. Touching it summons the fairy who gave it out. Although I owed Ethel a favor, not you. Can I have it back? She said, reaching out her hand. I slipped it back into its velvet pouch. She smiled again, loving my reactions. At the time, I really didn't understand it. I thought she was warm and welcoming. I know now she was playing games, and she was much better at them than I. What do you want? I asked. You, you said you'd make a deal, but what do you want? If you could have anything from a human. She sat up. I don't think anyone had ever asked her that before, demanding their own needs first. She flashed across the room and was nose to nose with me. Can I be honest with you? No judgment. I nodded. I want a human child, like as a pet, she said. I shrugged. Sorry, uh, I, I don't have any kids to offer. But you'd give me your kid if you had one, she beamed. I thought about it for a moment. I was too young to really take in the importance of the question. I, I guess, maybe, I don't know. She thought really hard for a moment. I have an idea. What about your first child? Can I have your first child when you have it? She was so excited to ask, like she's always wanted to ask, even if she was rejected. She just wanted to have the words come out of her mouth. Uh, well, wh what do I get? What do you want out of life? She asked. 
I smiled, excitement building. I want to be a witch, she frowned. I can't make you a witch. Oh, but I can tell you where one is. She's super nice. I'm sure she'd be happy to teach you. I'd like that, but I, I don't think that's worth my first child. Looking back, I'm really proud for standing up for myself in a bargain. I've always thought dying was kind of stupid. Can you make it so I can't die? And there it was, the most genuine smile I'd seen out of her. She was downright giddy. Yes, she squeaked. But that's a lot of magic, because that's giving you unlimited life. So I think it would be only fair that instead of your first child, the deal should be for all your children. <laughs> all my children for unlimited life, I stated plainly. Done, she said, stretching out her hand. I shook her hand in agreement and I felt a tingly sensation enter my hand. Purple light burst from my eyes, mouth, and ears, and then faded away. It felt good. Really good. There! You can't die now. You'll still age, so you might want to worry about that a bit. <laughs> Maybe learn some witch magic to stop that. Oh, oh, oh! She said, waving her hand in a weird, magic way. She pulled a small, rolled-up scroll out of the air and handed it to me. Here's a map to the friendly witch, I know. You can consider the map a friendly gesture. I'll be back when you have your first kid. <laughs> and before I could say anything, she was gone, vanished in a puff of blue smoke. The light on the ceiling slowly faded and then disappeared. I was left with the candlelight again. Present day. Michael has warmed up to me a little. I told him he could return my book when he was ready. I've effectively memorized the entire thing. It's more of a sentimental value and a few recipes that I want out of it, but I think it's far more important that he feels safe around me. I considered erasing his memory of Kevin. The more I thought about it, the more it felt like he was just returning to the general population. It feels more like death than actual death feels. He stopped being tardy. He's asked me questions about schoolwork more often, rather than just avoiding the issue. It's been a long process. Mrs. L., Michael said one day, he was calling from the doorway. He was huffing. He'd ran to the classroom. Something was wrong. I capped the dry erase marker mid-sentence. I had been getting a head start on the lesson for the afternoon, but something had scared Michael enough to come to me for help. What's wrong? John and Mike G. took Monty. Where? We sprinted to the yard. They were hiding in the alleyway, a small space on the east side of the school that connected the front and back of the building and wedged against the hill on that side. They were quiet. 
I assumed they were laughing like the bastards they were until they took it too far. Monty was laying on the ground, his wing broken. I could see it just by looking, but I had no idea what other damage they'd done. Out of the way, I said in a commanding voice. We, we were just playing, and then he stopped flying and squawked really loud, John stammered. How did you get into my office? I was angry and scared for Monty. The boys were silent. John, I demanded. We, we, we slipped in through the window. Did you unlock my door, or did you go back out through the window? I asked. Window, John said. He was smart not to lie right now or give me roundabout answers. Michael, I called out. He didn't follow me into the alley like I thought he had. He was still twenty feet away at the corner of the building. Come here! I pulled my office key out of my pocket. Go to my office. Remember where I left my book? Yeah. The second drawer down... There's a vial of pink liquid. Go get it, I said, giving him my key. He ran off without a second thought. I picked up Monty and hold him close. He's hurting. He might die. John and Mike G, they might die too. Maybe. I'll shrink them down to the size of a worm. Let Monty feast on them. Mike G is a bit pudgy. I'm sure he'd be a juicy treat. Monty's breaths are short. I rub his head. I hope my presence is calming. He always seems excited to see me when I come back to the office and when we go home for the evening. You can never fully tell what an animal is thinking. You just hope they know how much you care before it's too late. Rush footsteps. Michael turns the corner. He's holding three vials. I, I wasn't sure which one was the right one, so, so I grabbed them all, he said. Smart kid. I take the pink one and empty it into my hand. It's barely a liquid. The consistency is similar to shampoo. I haven't had to use it in an emergency before. I usually keep it around for scratches and paper cuts. In those cases, I use a cotton swab to get it out of the glass vial. I'm able to get enough out and rub it into Monty's wing. He's small, so fixing the wing was possible, but still took a moment. Whoa, Michael said. I hadn't thought about hiding this activity. I'm usually so careful. Monty's well-being seemed to override my own. Monty's wing flaps to life. He is put on my shoulder and acts if nothing happened. Michael is by my side. My attention is on the other two boys. But Michael is flickering back and forth between them and me. Don't ever enter my office again, I say, in the sternest voice I can. If the boys have any sense in them, they'll hear the undertones of my voice that clearly convey I'm holding back. Ye yes, yes, Mrs. L., Mike G says. John stays silent. I'm not sure if he doesn't understand the situation or if he's scared. He'd better be scared. John, did you hear me? 
John tries not to look me in the eye, but he's also scared not to. I can see he moves his eyes, but not his head. He's trying not to make any sudden movements. Yes, John says clearly. Good. Both of you head to the principal's office. I'll meet you there in a moment. They leave. Mrs. L., Michael says. Yes, he stammers. Are, 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 are you going to kill them? No, I respond, but I would like to. I, I, I would have if I were you. Monty didn't deserve to have his wing broken. Michael values the life of an animal over his own. He would have sacrificed himself for a bully, but thinks the bullies should be sacrificed for a bird. I agree in Monty's case. Can you teach me to do that? Michael asks timidly. The question actually broke my attention from how angry I was. What? You want to learn how to kill them? No, 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 he says. I want to know how to do the pink stuff. How you fixed his wing. I'm still holding the vial and my hand has some pink goo on it. Yes, it's easy. The lunch bell interrupted us. I can show you tomorrow during lunch. We'll meet in my office, if you're okay with skipping time on the playground. I'd like to learn, he says. I look forward to it. Winter, 1701. I found another witch who also liked to live alone, but she was willing to trade. She taught me how to stay young in exchange for work on her farm. I'd been with her for many years, but when the year 1700 arrived, she said she needed to move on, create a new life. She didn't like staying in a place longer than 25 years, and when she left, she left everything and everyone. I kept her house and land. I told people in the local town that she became ill and passed away, and that I was her daughter. No one asked any more questions. I miss those days when government IDs and paperwork didn't exist. When you arrived in a new area, you could just make up anything, and no one ever batted an eye. January 1st, 1701 came, and my little house was buried in five feet of snow. I couldn't leave. It was the first winter in many years I was caught off guard. I had some supplies, but they were running low. A week later, the snow had gotten worse. I ran out of food, and then I ran out of things to burn. I starved slowly, and I got colder and colder. If it weren't for the deal I made, I would have froze to death. But that was it. I no longer had the ability to die, so I just ran so cold I fell to the floor and wasn't able to move. Days passed, possibly weeks. I would have wept, but all the moisture in my body had frozen solid. And then one day, I heard someone snap their fingers and a fire lit up in the fireplace. They rolled me over like one would roll a barrel to the fire. I couldn't see them because my eyes had frosted over. I heard them speak before I fully thawed out. 
Where's my baby? She said playfully. The fairy. She fetched a sheet from my bed and fashioned a tent around me that enclosed me with the fireplace. That was nice of you, I said when I finally got my ability to speak back. I made sure not to say the words thank you, as I've heard that a fairy would see that as agreeing to being owed a favor. You must be famished. Would you like me to make you something to eat? She asked. I was starving. I hadn't eaten in days, but I also knew never to eat something a fairy gives you. I, I think my stomach has shrunk too much to eat anything. Are you pregnant yet? She asked. I'll be honest. I don't know how the whole not dying magic works on the baby of a pregnant woman. So it might be dead if, if you are. I was able to sit up and rest against the stones on my fireplace. I felt like I needed more rest, but I actually needed to move. My body was stiff from not moving for so long. I'm, I'm not pregnant, so we don't have to worry. The witch you introduced me to had a rule to not let people over to the house, so I haven't had a chance to meet any bachelors. It's my house now, though, so I'm sure that'll be changing soon. I've made seven deals for children. All the others were smaller deals, so those six were just for their firstborn, except this guy, Joseph. I get his second child. But, 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 I got my first delivery of a child a week ago. I got my first kid. It was so wonderful. Her energy was too much for me, but I was just so thankful for the fire. Do I get to meet this child? I asked. Meet it? No! What? It was a week ago, she said, extremely confused. <laughs> I tried to stand up, but my body wasn't ready yet. Didn't you want to have them as pets? Yeah, she said, still confused. Is that the right word? You know, like a, like a cow or a pig or chicken. Those are livestock, not pets. We keep those animals to eat them. You're thinking of a dog where we keep those as pets. They live in the house with us and we take care of them. They take care of us. Oh, she says. Then I meant I wanted a kid as livestock. I finally stood up, more out of self-preservation than out of a need to move my muscles. My relief from the fire was gone, and it had been replaced by fear. I think I like eating adults better. The bones are better developed, so they taste better. Better texture. I grabbed the sheet and ripped it away. She looked at me with a grotesque smile filled with sharp predator teeth and solid black eyes that shined like glass. But the kid was easier to cook. The muscles, you know, the actual meat. It wasn't as tough. You, you ate them? You ate a kid? 
You're going to eat my children? Her eyes faded back into the friendly human eyes. Her teeth retracted back and behind a set of human-shaped teeth. Yes, of course. Why else would a fairy want a child? I tried not to freak out. We could kept chatting after that. I, I wasn't comfortable for the rest of the night. I uh, almost wished I could go back to that frozen death rather than exchange pleasantries. I avoided courtship as much as I could until I found a way to sterilize myself. And even then I found dating to be more of an inconvenience than anything else. I'd had boyfriends and flings, of course, but it just never really seemed fulfilling. The fairy in a princess dress checked in on me from time to time, asking when I was going to have a child. Like a mother expecting a grandchild. Uh, I think at first she was disappointed, but as time went on, it became more of a tongue-in-cheek question Maybe every decade or every other decade I saw her. Centuries ago, I was disgusted with her. Decades ago, I was annoyed. But now, I view her as a friend. Like the only one that understands me. And I can actually talk to. She seems to like my company, too. Each time she visits, she seems to stay a, a little longer. About ten years ago, she even let me visit the fairy realm with her. And she even warned me about all the possible things I could do wrong. She confided in me that she was young and didn't really know what she was doing when she made a deal with me. Now she doesn't make such blatant mistakes. I don't know when the sadness started, though. I got to an age that I really wanted to be a mother, but I couldn't bear the idea of shipping a child off into the oven. Back in the 1920s, I looked into becoming a teacher. I found a certain contentment in helping students grow. I've watched many of them die, just grow up and pass away. I'm glad I made the deal I did, but I think the downside became a silver lining. It protected me from the heartache. Present day. Michael came to my office during lunch a couple days a week at first. I asked him about my book here and there, but reminded him I didn't need it back until he felt comfortable giving it back. I taught him how to make a basic healing salve. He seemed to take a liking to alchemy. It was a great entry to magic. The healing salve was not strong enough to heal a human bone or anything extreme. Because Monty was so small, it was able to work fine on him. It's also something a kid like Michael couldn't really get into trouble with. I taught him some other simple alchemy tricks. He asked for a way to see through things. I was worried he wanted to see through girls' clothes, but he explained it was because he likes a card game with randomized packs of cards and wanted to see what was in them before buying them. <laughs> By this time, he was coming to my office every day of the week. 
I realized we didn't always discuss magic together. Sometimes we just simply ate lunch and he'd tell me about his new favorite show or whatever he was excited about. It was heartwarming. He was also kind and gentle with Monty. I felt safe leaving them alone together. It was rewarding to see him succeed at the different magics I taught him. Sunday evening came, like it always did. I'd stepped out to a movie, but when I got home, I saw a window open. I left the upstairs window unlocked, and now it was open. If it's human, they'll regret it. I'm still quite nervous opening the front door. I can't defect a bullet, but as long as I get the jump on them, I can take any human in a fight. Maybe it's the fairy. Not likely. She would have turned on some lights, made herself a home. She'd be in the kitchen, raiding the fridge for a dessert. She's not the subtle type. And if she was here, it would be because she was bored and looking for attention. I step into my home. It's modest. I decided not to get one bigger than I needed, so I'm immediately in the living room. I bring a freezing spell to my fingers. Something moved on the couch. Light switch. Attack hand ready. Michael? I yell. He waves up with a jolt. Ah! My spell dissipates. He was sleeping on my couch. What are you doing here? How do you even know where I live? I'm not sure if I should be angry or scared. My home has been breached. He looks a little scared, maybe guilty. I I memorized your address off some mail in your office. I didn't know where else I could go. The other guys that I live with smashed up a bunch of raw eggs in my bed and then tied me into my bunk to try and make me sleep in it. I just couldn't take another night of sleeping there. I sit next to him and put my hand on his back. I only wish I could comfort him more. I'd probably be doing drastic things, too, if that was happening to me. If it were up to me, I'd let you stay the night and then worry about it in the morning, but it's not up to me. I have to take you home. What? he says, shocked. Please, I can't go back. Michael, I say in the most teacher voice I can. There are legal issues with children and knowing where they are. If I let you stay here without your foster parents' consent, I'd be breaking the law and neither of us would benefit from that. His lower lip quivers, tears form. I do everything I can to hold back my own tears. I, I feel for him so much, but... I know the right thing to do is to take him home. My hypocrisy dawns on me while driving. How I ran from home and the only thing I was truly afraid of was returning. And now here I am, driving someone else who's terrified of their home. I'm sorry, he says, breaking the silence. He's been looking out the window the whole time while sitting in the passenger seat. I understand how hard it is to grow up. Doesn't matter if you're growing up in a time when you could be burned for being a witch or growing up with cartoons. 
People can be terrible to each other. We arrive and I walk him to the door. He refuses to walk inside, so I knock on the door. It's just past 11 at night. The foster parents probably don't know he's gone yet. What do you want? An angry gentleman yells at me, the foster father, no doubt. I gesture at Michael. I believe this belongs to you. Mike. I explain. He said the other kids tried to make him sleep in a bed of broken eggs. He snuck into my house and wanted to sleep on my couch. He turns to me. I'm sorry. That little brat is always causing problems. I don't believe him. What do you mean? When the other kids beat up on him, he never fights back. He just asking for it with all the time. Wouldn't that mean the other kids are the problem for being the aggressors? He shakes his head. You don't have kids, do you? I'm a teacher. I deal with several children his age. Then you already know. Boys will be boys. If he doesn't stand up for himself now, he's always going to be the problem. I thought as a society we agreed not to use the phrase boys will be boys anymore. We've already had him over three years. I'm hoping he gets adopted out soon. You want him? He asks me. The question is off-putting. I wasn't ready for it. Yes, I'd say, sure of myself. I've realized how rewarding it's been teaching him. I know I teach a lot of children, but he really listens and we connect, and I feel a special kind of pride seeing him succeed. Then why did you bother bringing him back? Just let him sleep at your place, he says, and closes the door on us. Michael looks at me nervous. So, um, is that normal, I ask. He nods. Can I sleep on your couch tonight? I wouldn't have it. I have a guest room. You can sleep in a bed. Michael's been staying with me for a few months now. He stayed through the summer, and the new school term just started. The other kids had been laying off him. The news that he was living with me spread really quickly. It's not like we were hiding that information. I've been in contact with the previous foster parents. We filled out paperwork to transfer Michael into my care. I can't adopt him because he'd be my child and then the fairy would take him. But fostering a child, that's not my child, just a child living in my house. It's been an annoyance to become a foster parent. I had to take classes and wait for government employees to process requests. We're out on a hiking trail now. He really enjoys the outdoors, especially since he's taken to alchemy. Collecting dead animal remains or flowers and connecting with the magical world around us. A couple weeks ago, he had a temper tantrum over some cartoons he wanted to watch, while I wanted to watch a documentary. I was really shocked. It felt like it came out of nowhere. I was so worried I was doing something wrong. 
but I've looked into it, and I realized it's, of course, normal for children to have outbursts. It was hard. We had to sit down and have a talk about it, but it means he's opening up. He's feeling safe enough to express himself in our house. I know he didn't when he was bullied at school, and I doubt he felt it when he was in his last home. We'll find healthier ways for him to express himself. It's just part of growing up. Look, Michael shouts with excitement, a wasp nest. It's empty. It was also small, maybe three inches wide, hanging from a tree. You can use that to make a focusing potion. Or a senseless potion, the fairy says. Where did she come from? She just stepped out from behind a tree. She puts her hand on Michael's shoulder. Finally, your first child <laughs> took you long enough. What's she doing here? My first child? He's not mine. I was so careful to make sure he wasn't mine. She puts a hand on his shoulder. She's going to take him. I run towards them. She's too far away. I can't get between them in time. No, he is not mine, I cry. She and Michael vanish in a puff of purple smoke. All the hairs on my body stand up straight. I was so careful. But she took him. What do I do? Find a fairy ring? See if I can use it to get to her realm? No, I'd have to be incredibly lucky to find one in time. I assume she'll slaughter him quickly. She's probably already planning to eat him tonight. My hands are shaking. What have I done? He'd have been safe if I left him in that terrible house. Maybe not safe, but he wouldn't be cattle. Wait! I know what to do. I drop everything. I was holding a paper bag of things we'd collected. I don't know what all was in there. Don't care. I run for the car. Keys, door closed. Every small step feels like it's taking forever. Drive! I weave in and out of traffic. I'm usually so good with traffic laws. This is where I'm cashing in all my good behavior on the road. I hit a group of cars, stopped at a red light... I need to make a right turn. I drive off the road, half in a bike lane, half in the dirt, to pass seven or eight cars. A cop saw me do it. The lights turn on. Can't stop me. I roll the passenger window down. I send a spell out the window. A tree crashes down, stops <laughs> dead in his tracks. I'm sure someone saw me do that. I can't care about it now. I can't worry about my identity becoming public now. I make it to the storage unit. My stomach, no magic, is free. It feels like someone took a belt and cinched it as hard as they could around my internal organs. Oh, vomit everywhere. Oh, it was worth it to stop the police officer. I can't remember the combination on the lock. It's only four digits long. I bite into my finger. I draw blood. I can pull a blood magic trick. I snap my fingers with the blood and point at the clock. The dials spin to the right numbers and open up. I shove boxes out of the way. I push the old TV over. I think it cracked. I rip open a box. It's filled with dishes. Wrong one. I rip two more before I find it. The little velvet bag with the glass fairy favor in it. 
little it, the fairy says. I breathe a slight sigh of relief. He is not my child. You can't take Michael. He's not your child. He's mine now. Tu pueri es mi pueri. You're mixing Latin and Spanish. She gets all flustered. You humans have like seven languages. How am I supposed to keep them all straight? I mean, he wasn't my child before you took him. I very specifically didn't adopt him, so he wouldn't be mine. She pulls a folded paper out of thin air. Oh, you're so close! The foster care papers. Certified today. I assume it was about 20 minutes ago. It lists me as Michael's foster parent. His birth parents are unknown as his foster parent. You're acting legal guardian. He was yours. Now he's mine. But, but that still didn't make him mine. Legally, he belongs to the state, I demand. There's that smile from her, that chess player smile. The next words out of her mouth are checkmate. But you love him as a mother. The blood drains out of my face. I can't argue. More than his birth parents and more than his foster parents, I love him. I thought we were friends, I say in desperation. Do human friends not hold to their agreements? Please, I beg. I have never felt more scared in my life, never more helpless. She smiles. Mine now. Wait. There's a long bit of silence. She breaks it. For... I don't know. I was just trying to buy some kind of time. Of course we keep our agreements with friends. We, we are friends, right? I ramble to buy more time. Yes, I enjoy meeting with you, she says, like she's not planning on devouring my young. Then, as a friend, you'd be willing to make a new deal with me, right? Her eyebrow raises. I know what I want, she says. I want your life. It makes sense. She told me she likes eating adults more than she likes eating children. Michael would be safe, I ask. Is that the right question? Shouldn't I be caring more about my own safety? She shrugs. I can't promise that. Obviously, he's a kid. They always do dangerous things, like climb trees and stuff. You'll free him? She smiles and nods. Yes! I don't know if this means death. She'll own me. Maybe she can kill me. Maybe I still won't be able to die and she'll eat me forever. I don't know what's going to happen. But I don't know. There's no way I could live with the guilt if I caused Michael's death. My life for Michael? I reached out my hand. I'd make that deal. I've lived long enough. At least that's what I keep telling myself. 
She grabs my hand. Deal! I feel that same warm, good feeling I felt before. The last time I made a deal with her. But this time, the puff of colorful smoke surrounds me. It feels like bits and pieces of me are falling off, like I'm decaying. Is that it? Am I dying? Is this what she really wanted? She didn't want to own me. She wanted to watch me die. My heart feels like it stops, but I don't feel pain. I must be dying. Blackness. My eyes open. I'm not dead. I'm outside. Was I supposed to die? I'm not in my clothes. I'm wearing her dress. The fairy's princess dress. This is the creek where I showed Michael who I truly am. The school is about a football field away. I keep a jacket in my office. I'll go grab it and then head home. I don't have my keys on me, so I head to the main office. Hello? How can I help you? Megan asks, the woman at the front desk. Megan? It's me, Mrs. L. How can she not recognize me? We've worked together for years. I'm so sorry. I deal with so many parents. I, uh, I have a hard time keeping track, she says. She's lying. It's a polite lie. I know she's good at what she does. It's, it's funny, though. One of our teachers is named Mrs. L., it's her office, three doors down from the teacher's lounge, and does she teach in room 29, I ask. Yes, she smiles. Do you have a child in her class? That's my office, and my classroom. I make up some more stories and then step back out to the street. It's not my life anymore. That's what the fairy took. I stand there just in shock. Mrs. L? Michael asks. He found me. He recognizes me. He's holding my spell book. I forgot he had it. Michael? I'm so relieved. I wrap my arms around him. Are you okay? She didn't hurt you, did she? No. The fairy? She was really nice. I didn't give her my name, though, like you told me. She let me watch TV in her treehouse. I hug him tighter. I saw some of the guys from school. They, they didn't recognize me. The woman in the office, she doesn't know who I am either. We don't exist anymore. At least not on paper, I say. I am really good at starting a new life in a new area. We can make a new start. What do you think? I've been wanting to leave since I got here. I take my son's hand. I couldn't be prouder of him. We pass my old classroom, the fairy inside, setting up a lesson on the whiteboard. It dawns on me. She wanted all my children. And now she has them. All my students. Oh. 
It may have taken me a couple centuries, but it looks like I finally delivered. I find it silly, though. I thought it was just raccoons that like to eat trash. Epilogue. Hey, she says. I didn't think I'd see her again, especially not so soon. Yes, I'm scared that I'm forgetting something else. Take your damn bird! She throws Monty at us like she's throwing a baseball, completely disoriented. He catches himself in the air before hitting the ground and then f flies to Michael. He perches on Michael's finger and Michael compassionately pets his head. Huh. End scene. Yay, that was so wonderful, Cyan. Great job. Thank you. I'm excited for this entire episode because Alex's story is so wonderful, but also because we have a very special guest who's um, going to be on tonight. And he is a good friend and a wonderful writer that I've known for a long time now by the name of Matthew Robinson. And I'll just tell you a little bit about Matthew before we bring him on. He is a filmmaker and playwright who has worked on various projects for the Hollywood Fringe Festival and directed a short play at LACMA. He has most recently directed an episode of the comedic web series, Mr. Harmack Returns. He also directed the short film, The Beach, which is currently playing in film festivals. And his latest project is a Bloody Bloody Coda, a short horror film he wrote and directed as a tribute to Italian horror. I'm very excited to see it once they get it done. So without further ado, let's bring on Matthew. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Megan. Thanks for having me on here. Absolutely. This is so wonderful. Now, I have to say, I think you are being a little modest in your bio because I know you've done a lot more than this. And I know <laughs> that you've won several awards at the Fringe. And so I'm just going to like beef up your bio a little bit and, <laughs> and let everybody know that you're a little more awesome than you wrote in what you submitted. That's my constant problem. I don't know how to write about myself. It's, uh... <laughs> I know. I know. So tell me a little bit about how Bloody, you just uh, shot Bloody Bloody Coda, right? I did. I just finished that a few weeks ago. Uh, it's turned out wonderful. We shot it uh, in North Hollywood and uh, our main star was an actress named uh, Jenya Leno. Uh, who's been on stuff like Charmed and Xena and The Shield. Um, she was great, fantastic. And I, I just always kind of had a, a love of those Hammer and Giallo horror films mm -hmm. and how like crazy they are and wild they are and unpredictable. So I kind of wanted to do my own version of that. And uh, I couldn't have had a better cast and crew to put that all together. Oh, that's so wonderful. So, um... Can you tell us a little, like, what is, do you have a log line or do you have like a, what yeah. is the story of that? So it's about an aging opera singer who's just had vocal cord surgery, so she can't speak. And she's resting in her hideaway home when three thieves break in looking to take her valuables. But if she yells or calls for help, she'll lose her singing voice forever. Mm. So that's oh. kind of <laughs> Yeah, that, that sounds wonderful. Well, I can't wait for, um, 
for you to have it done and strip it out so that we can all we can all watch it. That's going to be a fun time. Thank you. Thank you. I'm looking forward yeah. to showing it to everyone. <laughs> So what a wonderful read that Cyan did. That was great. <laughs> I just, I love the way that she, um, that she can go back and forth between all of the voices. It's, it's, she's just such a talent when it comes to all of that. It also makes me very worried to ever make her upset or angry at me, you know, just a little bit. I know, right? She looks so, um, she looks so innocent, but I know she could be deadly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we have the writer, Alex Bloom, with us tonight, who uh, Matt and I both know from our, our writers group. So before we bring Alex in, let's, um, let's give a little intro. So Alex Bloom grew up in California and received a degree from CSU Northridge in cinema and television arts with a focus in screenwriting. He has a passion for storytelling and the intersection between horror, fantasy, sci-fi, and of course, the human condition. You can find all of Alex's work at disturbedlore.com and the story that you just listened to is available on Amazon. So without further ado let's bring in alex hello hello thank you so much for having me hi alex thank you for being here we're very excited to have your story on the show um so let's just dive right in can you give us a little bit of um what was the impetus for you to write this story yeah absolutely i um so I, I've been running uh, like a horror animation channel on YouTube for a while, and I've been doing a bunch of stories through there. Uh, I, I'm going to try and not make this story too long, but I hire people to do voice acting. I hire people to do uh, uh, illustrations, uh, basically all the stuff I can't do. Um, I hired uh, this uh, a woman to voice act and uh, read a, another story called The Boogie Boy. She did an excellent job and I, I got to talking with her and she told me just kind of this weird story about as a kid, they always thought that her, her teacher stole their baby teeth and stuff like that. And they thought she was a witch. And I asked her if I could write a story about it. Um, and so when I did that, that was, that's like the first chapter of this book, um, a short story. And then after writing that, uh, I turned that into an animated video. Um, but I enjoyed it so much that I was like, I want to expand this. I, I like, I think that there's, there's a lot more fun I can have here. Um, and then the, the fairy, uh, the fairy character has been in other videos and stuff. So, uh, this was like just another great opportunity to kind of, um, expand on that character too. I, I love that. I love it when we get ideas for stories and we, start off writing what we think is going to be like a small story or just kind of like an exploration. And then we just love that character so much that we feel like we need to mm -hmm. expand on that. And I love Mrs. L. I love this character. So I can definitely see why you would want to spend some more time with her. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, it. Uh, I, I almost feel like it's hard to drop any character that I write, you know, once you write a character and even like you finish their story and it's like, but, but then what happens after? I mean, isn't there like a, 
you know, there's a whole story after that. I mean, you talk about these fantasy stories, uh, you know, from um, Hans Christian Andersen. It's like the most interesting story is going to happen 10 years later when they've got 10 year old children. Right. Like, you know, yeah, this this situation was super interesting, but I always want to know more. <laughs> well, speaking of which, with these characters, with these like wonderfully drawn characters, how do you relate to your protagonist? I know this might be an odd question with this kind of story, but how do you relate to the protagonist? How, what is you in there? Um, you know, it's it, that's a really interesting question uh, that I, it, it's something I, I kind of reflect on uh, every time I'm editing and all that kind of thing. But I, I, I heard it even more so as Cyan was reading um, today, where it's like, you know, it's the same character that um this character as well as another main character i have have the same thing where they're they're hiding their true identities and things like that and um i'm part of the queer community and it's something that it's like even in just normal everyday work life and everything sometimes you have to hide it sometimes you don't you unintentionally hide it sometimes you just i mean sometimes you know you can be out and open about everything but it's still a lot of times it's not other people's business who you are and it just you know just to survive in in regular society can just be an issue um i mean i i know that even when i was you know i i relate to mike i keep what my my act the actual like a uh, paper copy of the book is right next to me that's why i keep pointing to it um but i relate to michael because you know as a kid i was bullied a lot and and not part i mean it, it felt like i was not part of the community of my school that i was forced to go to every day i mean um and, and just things like that so it just uh it makes you know the things that I was into then, I was into Power Rangers and I moved to a school that was not at all into Power Rangers. So suddenly I was a horrible outcast that nobody liked and, and things like that. And it's like, so I've just, I, I know the feeling so deep of, of pretending not to be who you are just so you can get through a day in, in, in life sometimes, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I've, I, I really like that. Cause that's one of the things that really drew me to this story was how Michael and Mrs. L are are bonding over their misfit status or their outside status, even though Mrs. L is obviously has, you know, makes questionable decisions and is a questionable person um, at at times. But but that is what that is what bonds them, and I think that bond and and that through line in this story is very is very rich because of. The reasons that you described before because you're writing from such a personal place and it is something that you've explored and experienced in your own life i think that definitely comes through in this story because that is that is a rich part of the story yeah thank you so much i mean that's that's heartwarming to hear <laughs> thank you i appreciate that yeah no thank you for thank you for sharing that yeah do you feel like the fairy is the antagonist in this story Um, that is, uh, ye, that is a good question, actually, now that I think deeper on it, because I, um, I love stories where the antagonist is not someone you expect, uh, 
And so a lot of times I will write it where it's like the antagonist is, is like in a case like this, I would write it as, as Michael being the antagonist because Michael's reserved, but, but that's really not, I, I really don't think that's what's going on in the story. I think that, that, that uh, the fairy is the antagonist. That's, that's who we have the, the final conflict with uh, the final scene with. Um, oh, <laughs> you know, it makes me, it makes me think, cause I do love, I love stories where, you kind of like flip on its head what you think of as an antagonist because immediately when you hear the word antagonist, you think of like comic book supervillain or, or things like that. Um, you know, uh, the first one that comes to mind is there, there's uh, the sixth sense with her, which I'm sure we've all seen. The antagonist in, in that is the little boy uh, is, um, uh, oh, it's Bruce Willis and Haley Joel boy. Osment. Mm -hmm. Haley Joel Osment, thank you. I mean, so that story, the 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 uh, Bruce Willis is a therapist who wants to help a child, and the child does not want to be helped, and that's the conflict of the entire story. Yes, there are ghosts in it, but it's like that's the the real conflict, and 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 I like there's so so much richness in that in in finding out how they can connect and how they can disconnect and and how they can grow from being different, you know. Mm -hmm. I I love that, and I I think it's an important distinction to make about what is an antagonist because really the antagonist is the person that forces the protagonist to grow or to change, and mm -hmm. it isn't always a villain. To your point, sometimes it's a kid, <laughs> and yeah. the sixth sense end in your story. It's it's the person that's that's challenging us that's saying you can't stay the same you have to make a decision to be a different person and it's it's not it could be the fairy a little bit but i agree with you i think maybe i in this reading i saw it as michael's michael being the one that's like forcing her to open mm -hmm. her heart and to be um to be different um yeah yeah there, I mean, I guess there's, uh, you know, this this is what I absolutely love about storytelling is I love the the archetypes to talk about behind storytelling and how you know you can say it, uh, one of the one of the ways that you can dissect this is to say Michael's the the antagonist and then that would make uh, the fairy either a, a what's called an adversary agent uh, where she's kind of acting on behalf of the the problem of the the story which is connecting with the story uh without actually being the main antagonist um or or uh uh another archetype is an independent troublemaker uh who who comes in to show uh problem uh, show problems that um the the hero has and is willing unwilling to get over i don't know that that's necessarily uh, I, yeah, I think she actually that now, I'll go back and forth over this this entire podcast, but I, I do feel yeah, I, I think it actually makes a, a certain amount of sense that that Michael's the antagonist and 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 the fairy just comes in to stir the pot, you know and 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 rile things up. Yeah. So Matt, what do you think since everybody's giving their opinion about the antagonist? <laughs> I mean, I, I typically think that when I was listening to it, I did feel that Michael was the one who was the antagonist, at least the central force of uh, obstruction of an obstacle. Um, but it's, a, you know, it's a sort of story where everyone's a little bit uh, 
rough around the edges, to put it lightly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone's got a little couple of dark secrets in the closet. So, and I, and I love stories like that. I love stories where you're not quite sure who is who you're supposed to be rooting for, and yet you just kind of keep uh, watching because you're so fascinated by their code, their methods. You know, not that your stories are similar in this way, but it kind of reminded me of like Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal from Tony Gilroy, where everyone's kind of out for themselves. Everyone's doing something a little nasty, a little mean, but you're so charmed by them. You're so charmed by the method and their their odd sense of professionalism with the horrible things that they do. And I think you have characters here who, even though they're maybe not the most, um, they may be a little unsavory. They're all very interesting. They're all, I want to spend time with them. I like spending time with them. And I, I find that fascinating with your work. Thank you. One yeah. thing I wanted to ask you uh, was about, you know, what did you find the most difficult about writing this story? Like, what was your biggest challenge? You know, this one was not hard to write. Uh, I, I'm I'm finishing up another short story uh, that I'm going to publish on Amazon as well. That one was hard to write, and I I don't. This one this one I I kind of sat down and outlined it, uh, and then just got to work. It really I mean it was just, it, this one wrote itself. I don't know why, and I I don't I don't know. I wish I could explain it because if I could explain it, I could replicate that and write more, <laughs> but no, this one, this one um, really just moved through. Uh, I, when I get done with like a first draft or a second, you know, or, you know, in the draft process of going through there's uh, on a typical story that I write, I probably write three times as much words that actually in, stay on the page. Uh, because part of it is just kind of like exploratory writing. Some of it is, you know, since I don't have an outline, then I'm going off in different ways and different things. And I don't even know what the story is before I like, I really like latch onto something. This one, um, I mean, maybe like 25% more words were originally in this that I took out, but I, it really like, I mean, and that's just with editing and writing, you know, (laughs) writing, uh, uh, first drafts and second drafts. So, um, God, I wish I knew the, oh, you're driving me nuts now. Cause I really wish I knew the answer. To that. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's I, a good I, problem to have. I feel like, if yeah. you, you know, yeah. to have that experience with a story where you just sit down and it flows out of you and you have more words than you need and you yes. can make those delicate edits, which I think you did very skillfully with this and have that finished product you know it on the one hand it's very nice but as a writer i know on the other hand it is infuriating because (laughs) you do think like if only i could replicate this if only i knew of a blue fairy that i could you know had a wish (laughs) (laughs) that she could give me (laughs) oh but that's need a firstborn i swear like uh no um Oh, well, that's, that's great. Um, is there anything else, Alex, that you would like to say about the story or that you would like to tell our listeners? Um, the, so the, uh, I'm glad I'm saying this last, this is actually the second book, um, in kind of the same canon uh, of stories. I have, I have another book called Green Eyes that's on Amazon uh that um that's kind of the first book that i i released for um that's set in kind of the same universe 
Um, I don't believe any of the characters are in both. Uh, that may or may not be true, but it's definitely like, and this is one of the things I'm glad that I'm saying it so, so late is I don't want anyone to think that you can't read that. You have to read them in a certain order or anything like that. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, I, I love expanding universes and I love working that way of like telling more stories and telling stories with other, you know, with characters that, that were maybe a minor character in this story and learning more about them. Um, so uh, the next one that I have out actually focuses a lot more on the fairy uh, and, and her mother. Uh, and so that's a lot of fun, but so, and then I'm work working on book four. <laughs> wow. That's, that's amazing, Alex. You're, you're such a prolific writer. You just keep turning them out. That's, that's amazing. So all of Alex's work can be found on Amazon and can they find you through your, your website, disturbedlore.com? Um, as of today, it currently only just links directly to uh, my YouTube channel. Okay. Um, I, that, that's, that's one of those things that's just on my list of like, I got to get a website set up so that it's like a landing page for everyone, like an easy landing page. Uh, I believe that the YouTube channel does have links. If you click on like the, the about channel or about me uh -huh. section, um, uh, if not, I will check that before this, this, uh, podcast goes live to make sure that that is because <laughs> that's the bare minimum of promoting yourself. <laughs> oh, and that's, that's not a problem. We'll, we'll put all of your information in the description on the episode so that everybody will be able to find all of your wonderful work. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you so much, Alex. Thank you for sharing your story with us. And thank you for uh, being here to do this interview. This has been so lovely. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. All right. Thanks, Alex. Bye. Bye, Alex. All right. So that concludes another fantastic episode of Nobody Reads Short Stories. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You can find all of our previous episodes at nobodyreadshortstories.com. Watch all of our videos on YouTube. Please like and subscribe, as well as download. You can download our audio podcasts from Stitcher, Google, Amazon, um, Apple Podcasts, basically anywhere you listen to your audio podcasts, you can find us. So thank you so much, and we will see you guys soon. No one reads short stories anymore I really don't know what they're written for Go write a short story and throw it out the door Cause no one reads short stories Funny, sad, or gory No one reads short stories no one reads short stories in